Leverage buyouts fail about 19% of the time. Uh, ESOPs fail about one half of 1% of the time. And it's not because it's an ESOP, it's because, you know, companies fail. From Ray & Associates Studio, this is Unsuitable, a management financial services podcast for entrepreneurs, tenured business leaders, and others who are ready to look beyond the suit and tie culture for meaningful, measurable results. I'm Doug Hauser. At some point, if you're a business owner, you'll have to think about trading your business in for retirement. And when it comes to identifying an exit strategy, you have a few options to choose from. You can liquidate, keep it in the family, sell it to the highest bidder, or you can get your employees involved. Employee stock ownership plans, also known as ESOPs, have gained a lot of traction in recent years. Ted Lape, senior partner with Lazier Capital Partners, is here to explain what an ESOP is, what it isn't, the benefits of starting your own, pitfalls, best practices, and more. Welcome, Ted. Hi, Doug. Great to be here. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time. So, so ESOPs. Talk to me a little bit about about that. If I'm a, if I'm a business owner, I, I hear a lot about that, but I don't really know what that means other than my employees are going to be involved somehow. So. Yeah, uh, basically an employee stock ownership plan is a defined contribution plan, a lot like a 401k, only instead of having uh, Apple or IBM in the plan, you've got stock of the company uh, that you work for. Okay. So obviously, if if I'm an employee, then I have a a vested interest in in seeing the company be successful beyond my own pay and and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's the whole idea. And there's a lot of third-party peer-reviewed studies that show that companies that sell to ESOPs get that benefit, that the employees do, in fact, start to care more and that um, they get better uh, productivity, uh, less turnover, better recruitment. Uh, if they embrace it and communicate it and do all the things you got to do to let people know it exists. Uh, now, talk to me about when this this might be appropriate for a business owner. Is there a specific company size that that fits well, or a certain revenue or EBITDA level where where they seem to fit? Uh, that's a great question. Um, on the uh, we tend to think of it in terms of earnings, that, okay. because you want to have a certain value to do this. Because there's some legal stuff you got to do and some complexity. Um, it's manageable, but um, if you've got a, a million and a half or, or two of what we call EBITDA or cash flow, uh, think of it maybe as net income uh, adjusted for excess owner salary or whatever. Um, then you're probably big enough to to be thinking about it. Okay. Uh, but you also want to have some other things. The number one thing you want to have for an ESOP is good management. Sure. So if you're an owner who's thinking, gee, I'm done and I want to go to Florida, yeah. well, I think that's great. You ought to go to Florida. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but you probably should just sell your company to a competitor. Mm. However, if most of our clients, the the owners want to stick around for a while, they may not yet know who's going to take over after them. Okay. Uh, they commit to uh, figuring that out. Okay. Or they've got uh, pretty good management already, uh, either one. And uh, so that's for the, the, the first prerequisite. So maybe I want, you know, three to five years of, of kind of tapering down what I do and, and get the next level of management sort of trained up, that yeah, kind of thing. That would be uh, very normal. And sometimes they, they think, you know, I can train up the next level of management. And sometimes they think, you know, gee, I'm going to have to bring someone in. Okay. And we see both all the time. Interesting. So now from 
the perspective of the owner, the benefit is I still get something to do, right? I stay in the business. I stay involved. My legacy stays around, you know, that, that type of thing. Yeah. So there's, there's two, I guess, sets of benefits. When I first started dealing with ESOPs, uh, I focused on the first set of benefits, which are, I'll call the features and benefits of ESOPs. Okay. And then the second set, really in the last couple of years, we really come to understand that that's almost even more important, uh, as good as the first set are, that the second set may be even more important. The first set is, just to give the shorthand, there's the ability to keep running the company. Mm-hmm. Um, some people think the employees start running it. That's that's not really what <laughs> happens. Uh, the second set of benefits is there's a ton of tax advantages. The owner can potentially sell tax-free. Okay. The company typically will become tax-free. Uh, and there's some additional tax savings that would take longer to explain. Right. Um, and then there's um, a lot of times the owner feels a real uh, a benefit out of the fact that the employees, and especially the key employees, we, we hear a lot of focus on, I've made a lot of promises to the key employees. They really helped me build this thing. They're going to help me go forward. All the stuff that they get. Sure. That's really important. The second set of benefits <clears throat> has really become bigger and bigger um, the more we've understood it. And that is, um, there's a lot of studies by the Exit Planning Institute and other folks that have shown that 75% of people who sell their companies are, are not happy that they did so. Yeah, interesting. And it's either uh, the way the buyer's running, it's not good, or a lot of times it's just the fact that, uh, especially with baby boomers, their lives are so intertwined with the company, sure. their social lives, their yep. uh, life of relevance, their they're, they're just they're emotionally attached, right? Yeah. And when you disconnect them from the company, which normally happens in a third-party sale, no matter what the buyer says, right? <laughs> um, <clears throat> they. They get disconnected, and and that's very hard on them. Yeah. Uh, maybe the first three months they play a lot of golf, and that feels pretty good. And <laughs> you maybe, can only play so much golf, right? Uh, yeah. Then you get six months out, and well, it's still all right. And then you know by by month nine they get pretty bored, and then uh, they're bugging the heck out of the their wife who they were <laughs> never home with, right. and now they're home with uh, you know eight hours a day or twenty hours a day, and so. Uh, the, the ESOP is great because they control the exit. They can st- keep working as long as they want. They can taper back. They can travel, you know. Okay. And then if they do eventually feel good about leaving, they can do that, but they control the the timing. Yeah. Now, you talked a little bit, obviously, about the, the financial part, the tax savings, and, and that mm-hmm. can be significant, correct? If I do mm-hmm. a 100% sale to an ESOP, what what does that mean, big picture terms in terms of yeah, tax savings? There's a couple different ways it could go, but the uh, the main way that people do it is they'll sell 100% and then they'll convert to an S-corporation if they're not already an S-corporation. Okay. And as an S-corporation, it's a flow-through entity, as mm-hmm. all you accountants out there know. And uh, if the owner is the ESOP trust, the ESOP trust as a retirement plan doesn't pay federal tax. And in most states, almost all states, it doesn't pay state tax. Which is a great, obviously, great benefit for yeah. So you can pay the owner back quicker, and that's that's a big benefit. Because essentially, in in a typical structure, correct, not all of the proceeds are paid to the owner at closing. There's a portion that's paid, and then the ESOP 
pays back over time, correct? That, that's exactly right. And uh, typically, whatever a bank would lend is what you get at closing. Mm-hmm. And then the rest is on a seller note. And uh, different people do it different ways. But we typically will get about a 12% return on that seller note. Yeah. Because just... you're behind the bank. And that's a, a, people like that. Yeah. And so when you add that 12% return and you add and, and take the... Um, purchase price and the tax savings and all that, most of our clients, almost all of our clients in the middle market end up with more money in their pocket at the end of the day than if they had sold to a competitor or private equity or, now there's exceptions obviously, but but most of them end up with more money and they accomplish all the other stuff they're looking to to get done. They're happier because I I think of that spectrum and, and typically, you know, historically having dealt on the finance side with clients that are doing this or whatever the case might be, you know, we would always say, well, you know, if you, the least amount of return is if you sell it internally to a family member or that kind of thing, you're, you're maximizing your return. If you find some, Third party, uh, you know, national player or something like that. Uh, typically, the multiples higher. But from what you're saying, if I'm a business owner, I can accomplish so much more through an ESOP. Yeah, there's a basically there's a third. Well, there's a third party trustee who's a fiduciary mm-hmm. that um, is your buyer. They're yep. there to make sure it's fair to all the employees. And there's right. a valuation firm, and they're supposed to come up with a value very similar to the real world. And they, and they do. Now there's, just from the way valuations are done, unloved uh, uh, in the real world companies like sure. contractors right. and niche plays, you yep. know, um, <clears throat> tend to do better in ESOPs. But if you're a high-flying tech company yeah. uh, that's going to sell for a multiple of sales or, you know, someone can come by you and take all your costs out and get rid of all your people, right. you know, in the real world, they're going to pay more. Yeah. But by and large, you get a similar purchase price, plus you get all that interest for financing it and all the tax savings, you're, you end up better off. Yeah. And I know from experience, you and I have worked through a number of mutual clients that have been just, you know, I- extremely pleased at the end of the day with where they end up, not only financially, but again, all of those those kind of uh, more emotional and softer issues. They, they remain there. The employees are happy. They're happy all those types of things. But let's talk about some of the the difficulties with that. Some of the things that I, I've seen folks run into, they're not prepared for the level of, say, financial reporting or the fact that, hey, I was an owner and I just kind of commingled my personal stuff in, in the business. Uh, some of those issues have to be kind of worked through, correct? Yeah. And we, we spend a fair amount of time with them up front, getting them to understand that this isn't your piggy bank anymore. Right. That you're going to sell the company and you're going to take, you get to pick, you know, what you're going to earn going forward. Right. Uh, and the rest of it, um, that income, you're going to sell to the ESOP and that, uh, you, you know, you're not going to do the ESOP and then go get a boat and a plane and a country club. <laughs> right. that, but, but you're going to do very well. You're going to get that whole purchase price. You're going to keep getting your salary and benefits. And uh, you're going to get that additional, you know, interest or other stuff. Yes. But no, it's not your piggy bank. And people, uh, our clients seem to have gotten that. Yeah. Because we also bring in uh, legal and accounting and, you know, folks like you that also understand that. And so when we get that straight up front and then they have those people on an ongoing basis, we really haven't seen that be an issue. It's where... 
that hasn't been made clear up front. Right. And people are just trying to throw it together because maybe they'll get some fees or something. Right. <laughs> and they don't explain all that. That's when you get the the problems. Yeah. And oftentimes, you find, and what we see is the, the level of financial reporting that then, say, the bank requires or the trustee requires. It, it uncovers uh, opportunities within the business, you know, yeah. things that maybe they weren't thinking about or weren't measuring very well. Um, you know, it, it really benefits everybody at the end of the day. Yeah, we have the whole gamut. We have people that already are getting audits and they're ready to go and there's not much change at all. And then we have people who are doing compilations. Right. And, uh, you know, you and I just worked on a contractor who right. needed to get their, their house in order. And uh, I think it'll help them a lot because yeah. now they'll have better quarterly numbers. So they actually know how they're doing. Right. Versus, you know, waiting until the end of the year and kind of. Oh, that's what we did. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. The the owner always intuitively kind of knew, but now you've yeah. got to share that information. You know, yeah. be transparent with everybody, right? Yeah, and if that owner who really had a good feel for the business by looking at, you know, maybe each job or or whatever. Yeah. You know, when he leaves, uh, the the next person may not have that intuitive feel because he didn't grow up in the business. Yeah. And you want to be able to leave something that someone else can run. Exactly right. And I think you, you bring up a, a great point. One of the things we always struggle with in talking with clients about it is getting them to understand that the knowledge transfer is is one of the most important aspects to this. And, yeah. and oftentimes that's something that gets overlooked. Has that been your experience too? Yeah. Um, you really have to commit to that. So um, I'll give you an example of uh, someone who did it did it right, a trucking company in, in town. Okay. They did uh, warehousing, brokerage, trucking, uh, LTL, less than load. Yeah. And uh, they had a president who was the chief sales guy. Okay. And they had a COO, CFO. And they said, okay, we're going to sell this. And in the next three or five years, we're going to train our replacement and be gone. Uh, the COO went out, found his replacement, trained him for a year, stuck around for another two years, uh, you know, working less. Yeah. Saw that it was working and left. Sounds great. The uh, CEO that trained his replacement for a year and um, didn't work out so well. Oh, had to replace uh, the, the replace person. the replacement, <laughs> yeah, and uh, train that person for a year, and it was looking great. So then he went uh, two days a week, stayed on the board, and uh, that's working out pretty well. Good, and he's still involved, but he's also traveling and playing golf and nice. doing all that kind of stuff. And the company's doing great. Good. So, so talk to me about say post transaction. What what does it look like in terms of responsibility? You have there's now obviously a fiduciary responsibility that that is there that maybe wasn't there before. There's uh, a board, correct? That that's typically formed. Yeah, if if someone doesn't have a board already, you're going to have either usually a three or five person board. Um, often, you know, two of the three or three of the five are the old sellers. Mm -hmm. And then you got to have at least one independent board member. Independent basically means they're not a vendor. Gotcha. And they're usually picked by the sellers um, to give you know some independence um, because they're not a vendor. And uh, they're going to run the company. And the trustee is not always, but usually what's called a directed trustee, uh, meaning they're directed by the board what to do. And mm -hmm. they'll do it unless it's somehow going to violate ERISA. Um, now, they are obviously always independent with regard to the value of the company. Sure. That they, they have to be because they're they're the ones saying, 
that the value is fair and, and determining that. Um, but uh, people uh, sometimes worry that the trustee is going to be, uh, you know, calling them every day. Right, kind of in your face, right? What are you doing uh, here? Yeah. And what they find out when they look into it is, and they've got 100 or 200 or 500 clients, and uh, ESOPs are incredibly popular. They're doing a lot of new ones, and they're taking care of the existing ones. They just want to get the financials and know everything's all right. Now, if the company is is uh, doing very badly for some reason, sure, they're going to ask, okay, well, what's the plan to fix that? Right. And if you got a plan, there's no problem. Right. Uh, now, however— if you say, well, you know, we're five years down the road, I have all my money and I'm hanging out <laughs> in Florida. And they say, what's the plan? And you say, well, my plan is I'll have another margarita. Um, <laughs> well, that's a problem. And, you know, then, then you are going to hear from the trustee because they're going to say, you know, we got to fix that. Yeah. Or or uh, hope. I hope things get better. I tell my, my daughters that all the time. Hope is not a strategy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no one, you know, the bank. or But that's really, really rare. If you look at the statistics, um, leverage buyouts, which is what an ESOP is, yeah. it's a tax-advantaged leverage buyout. Right. Leverage buyouts fail about 19% of the time. Okay. Uh, ESOPs fail about one half of 1% of the time. Interesting. And it's not because it's an ESOP. It's because, you know, companies fail. Right. Right. So you you and obviously your firm, I mean, you, you travel around the country and are well known, obviously, in, in the world of uh, ESOPs. What what do you see in terms of trends and, and things like that in the marketplace? I mean, is financing still pretty readily available? Lenders being aggressive uh, that, that you see any particular industries or, or anything like that, that that you're seeing? Yeah, we see all industries. Um, we tend to get a lot of contractors and a lot of professional service firms. Hmm. Contractors, because there's not really a logical buyer, mm-hmm. um, and it's hard sometimes for the knowledge transfer. Yeah. And ESOPs really uh, help with all that. And then uh, professional service, because if you think about it, all you have is elevator assets. You know, they right. walk out the door at night. You want them to come back. Right. Um, and so uh, recruitment, retention, all that kind of stuff is better. So we do a ton of those. But we do manufacturing, distributing, et cetera, distributors, et cetera. In terms of trends, the uh, values have been uh, growing and they've sort of peaked right now. Okay. The tax law change by the way ESOPs are done, it's obviously cash after taxes. Mm-hmm. And when they lowered the taxes, it raised values. Right. Uh, you know, 15, 20%. And sure. so that helped. And then the stock market and the economy and everything else. Um, we are starting to see um, people look at the projections because every time you do an ESOP, you'll project out five years what you're going to do. And yeah. everyone knows you don't know what you're going to do that's five <laughs> right. years, but it's. <clears throat> But, you know, give us directionally what you're going to do. And then they kind of look at that and then project that out forever. And they say, okay, all that cash flow is worth a number. Yeah. Well, they're starting to say, uh, whereas before maybe we'd, uh, you know, agreed that the next five years would be very nice growth. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe, hey, the economy's been going a long time. Pretty, pretty good, right? Pretty good. And, you know, seeing a little bit of signs that maybe there's some stuff out there. Yeah. Maybe we'll we'll temper that a little bit. Okay, we'll still buy into growth, but you know maybe we'll be a little bit, a little bit more conservative in, yeah. in terms of determining that that yeah, future cash deter- flow. Basically, yeah, you still get a great value, and then and then banks are doing something similar. Okay, uh, especially with contractors. Yeah, um, less so with maybe some other folks. Sure, you know if you're an all service business or. Yeah. 
uh, you're insulated against the economy. They're not, you know. But for the cyclical businesses, you know, they're starting to factor in a little bit. Yeah. Uh, maybe we'll, you know, lend a quarter less of uh, cash flow than we would have. Sure. But but for the the bank and everybody involved, if you've got a an initial piece that's financed that's cash out to the owner, and then there's a seller note for the remaining piece, that also leaves some flexibility, right? Oh, absolutely. In terms, yeah. in terms of what you can do. Yeah, people are are constantly worried. Hey, am I strapping the company? And what they find out is when you take out all taxes, mm-hmm. uh, you'd be shocked how much cash flows there. <laughs> So normally what we see is there's about twice as much cash flow as you need. Sure. When you when you do an ESOP right. uh, to pay the bank and the seller and you know all that stuff. Yeah. Because that's the way we structure them to have some really nice uh cushion. And so we we rarely have uh companies getting getting any kind of trouble. And then they have the ability obviously maybe a couple of years in to to come back and and perhaps do another another round of that or in fact I know we've got a client who has been literally an ESOP for 30 years and it's long been paid off but now they're going to to recast that do you see that those kinds of things happening yeah too? on new ESOPs because the owner wants to get paid the money the road yeah. um, and and because the company's tax free the bank debt gets paid down incredibly quickly and mm-hmm. then we'll see banks, since they got paid down, refinance every year or two to get the seller more money. Yeah. And the seller normally will have the whole purchase price in four or five years. Wow, that's great. And then they'll have that extra interest in another year or two. Yeah. So they get, it, they get it really quickly. And that's why um, we almost never see management buyouts work. Because if you try to do it with after-tax dollars, um, it doesn't really work out very well. It takes right. 15 years or it takes a long time. Whereas with um, the ESOP, because you're tax-free, you can pay back really quickly. Yeah. Yep. What about the 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 increased value for the employees over time? You hope, obviously, the business is successful when their individual share value increases. And then at some point, they have to, um, you know, maybe they retire at some point and they want those shares repurchased. Does that Do we typically run into problems with that or is that kind of built into the the modeling yeah so esap's the key are to do them right up front mm-hmm. and to plan for all that stuff if you do that we don't have any problems but people who don't plan for that it is a problem yeah uh, but there's some built-in safeguards okay. so for example uh, well first of all there's good value appreciation uh, appreciation because even if the company doesn't grow um, if you think about it, let's say you sell your company for 10 million and you got 10 million of debt yeah. you know, to the bank and to the seller. Well, every dollar of debt you pay down is a dollar of equity. Well, and because now you're not paying taxes anymore, you're paying that debt down very quickly. Right. So even if the value of the company doesn't grow, the equity value grows very quickly. Sure. So there's a lot for the employees. And because you're not paying tax, there's also a lot more cash to buy back shares in the future. Sure. But the built-in safeguards are a couple. One, when employees get stock, they get stock every year. Um, that stock vests over six years. Okay. Okay. So if you do a new deal, um, people aren't going to invest for six years. They vest partially, you know, yeah. it's zero uh, percent and then twenty percent, then forty, yeah. sixty, eighty, a hundred. But you know, they're not fully vested until six years. And right. then if they leave, typically the company can uh, wait five years and pay out over five years because it's retirement. Right, and then the employee can take that money and put it in an IRA or a four hundred one k. But there's some time built in there 
for the cash flow. So they've got to, some some runway in essence. They got some runway, yeah. 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 That's great. And there's some other safeguards we don't need to go into that also help out. But yeah. 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 Well, it sounds like it's I mean, it's, it's something that any owner who's looking to perhaps think about that transition or succession or or exit over time or or a liquidity event of some kind it's a it's a great potential avenue for them to pursue yeah just about all companies uh where it doesn't work well is is again you don't have management uh the second thing is you get less cash at close yeah if people are looking to get most of their cash at close you know, uh, that's that's not an ESOP. Right. I mean, there's ways we can do that with mezzanine and equity, but most people don't want to do that. Right. So um, those are kind of the drawbacks. Uh, what you gain, though, is you, you you get rid of stuff that you get in third-party sales like escrows and earnouts, all that stuff yeah. where, hey, we're going to give you money at close, but you got to earn really. it. really. <laughs> yeah, but the rest of it you got to earn, and maybe we're not going to give it to you, and we're yeah. going to fight you for it. Exactly. You don't have any of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, and you get all that interest and all that other stuff we talked about. Yeah, that's um, great. So, yeah, so if people like that idea uh, and they're the right age, and you yeah. know, then uh, they should think about it. Something for uh, for business owners definitely to consider. So mm-hmm. that's, that's awesome. Well, thank you, Ted. If you uh, want more tips and insight or to hear previous episodes of Unsuitable, uh, visit www.raycpa.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Unsuitable on iTunes or wherever you like to get your podcasts, including YouTube. I'm Doug Hauser. Join us next week for another Unsuitable interview from an industry professional. The views expressed on Unsuitable on Ray Radio are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Ray and Associates. The podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to replace the professional advice you would receive elsewhere. Consult with a trusted advisor about your unique situation so they can expertly guide you to the best solution for your specific circumstance.